Waste not, want not is as valid a charge today as when it was first said. With food costs at a record high and with consumer waste also at an all-time high, it seems prudent to use our resources wisely. But after a long week of work, I was feeling discouraged by my half-bare pantry. A forgotten can of green chilies and the crumbled dregs of stale tortilla chips. Fridge was no better. Back half of a dozen eggs and some leftover avocado. But while thumbing through the pages of 6,000 recipes in The Joy of Cooking, I found a solution that not only brought my orphaned ingredients together, but also sparked some joy and inspiration in my kitchen. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Ayla. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm feeling pretty groovy. I love November. It's a time for family get-togethers and joy and celebration. I love Thanksgiving as a holiday. It's actually probably my favorite holiday. So I'm really excited about getting together with family and celebrating and sharing gratitude for the year. How, how are you? What are you up to? Oh, I'm great, too. Eric's home. Yay! Yay! It's been so nice. <laughs> and uh, actually, November's turning into a really beautiful month here for us. We've had a little bit of snow, but not like that crazy stint when he was gone. So that's been good. And yeah, I love November as well. It's going to be a very quiet Thanksgiving for us. It'll be just the three of us. One of us is a quadruped, so but I'm sure <laughs> that she will enjoy all of the fixings. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yes. Oh, yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah, this is just a great time to get in the kitchen and try something new or get familiar again with old favorites. Maybe it's because this is such a food centric time of year. It's why it's one of my favorites, but it, it is. I'm just I'm excited for the holidays. I agree. I agree. And to your point, revisiting some of those recipes that we don't necessarily make throughout the year is really fun because it makes it a special dish for a special time and you're not tired of it. Yeah, exactly. Because you don't, it's not part of your regular, like our chorizo and cornbread stuffing that it's like kind of a family favorite. I never make it any other time of year. I could. There's right. no reason for me not to, but Man, it's just something a little extra special when it's mm -hmm. had time for that dish. Right. Yeah, I love it. You know, when we first conceived the cookbook theme for this season of As We Eat, and we began to select the books we wanted to explore, I don't think that I had the joy of cooking or joy pegged as anything super special to me. And I had some time to think about and examine why I think that is. Many of us expand our recipe and cookbook collections over our lifetimes, We've got the ones passed down from prior generations, or we were given as gifts at showers or weddings, or that special volume acquired on vacation. I mean, I could go on and on. There are a multitude of ways that we communicate about food and cooking, and it seems like the one thing that we may all love to do after eating the food is helping guide others towards creating good food, you know, if we're receptive to that lesson. 
When I look at my growing collection of cookbooks and food reference books, I see reflected back at me a great curiosity about cultures and food ways that are different from my own. I have several books about Japanese cuisine, one that I have come to love and appreciate in my 40s. I see a reverence for tradition in my secondhand and well-loved copies of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, The Complete Indian Cookbook, and of course my 1970-ish Betty Crocker's cookbook, the one stuffed with pages torn from the Los Angeles Times food section. And I see a fine balance between books of clear instruction and guidance on easy weeknight favorites, next to books chronicling very specific and often super eclectic communities like restaurant staff's favorite family meal recipes. Why joy has been missing all this time probably mostly has to do with me than anything else. I could point out that joy was largely an American phenomenon in its earliest days. It was an American book for American readers and eaters, but I don't come from a family steeped in Americana. Our food traditions are more Cape Malay than Cape Cod. By the time I came of age, I was looking deeply into Betty Crocker, Martha Stewart, and Sunset Magazine to enhance my own food repertoire. I thought the joy was meant for those who needed to be coaxed into cooking, and I ain't no beginner. I thought I knew what I was doing enough because I could execute the dishes that I really liked to eat the best. So why bother learning how to boil an egg when I was doing that when I was seven? But back to modern day, and thanks to the time change... It's early morning, and I'm confronting this frankly daunting doorstop of a book. And finding a recipe in 6,000 <laughs> feels like hunting for a needle in a haystack. Because it's one thing to know what you want to cook and then to locate that recipe in the index, and it's an entirely another to leisurely flip through a book for something that inspires, especially when you're flipping through 6,000 recipes. I think generally cooking eggs are easy, so I decided to look for an egg dish. So I'm flipping through and pass directions on how to boil, fry, and scramble eggs when the phrase stale corn tortilla chips catches my eye. Just so happens that I have a bag with the broken dregs of some chips in my pantry that I was contemplating throwing out, and suddenly I have a recipe for Tex-Mex migas, and all I need is some onion, check, garlic, check, Jalapeno, well, okay, no, but I do have some diced green chilies, crushed stale tortilla chips, oh yeah, I mean, that's the whole point here, and eggs. And yes, I do have enough eggs without running to the store, I, I double-checked that. <laughs> Migas, which means crumbs, is not a dish with which I'm familiar, so I did a little bit of research. There are two main traditions. One stems from Spanish and Portuguese cuisines with an origin from shepherding and hunting traditions, and the other from Mexico. And that has its own Tex-Mex varietal. <laughs> Listen to me describing this humble, like, let's use up the leftovers dish with, like, a fine wine. <laughs> well, this Amigas varietal has notes of aging cheddar cheese accented by the spicy, pungent chili notes. <laughs> I love my humor. It cracks me up. But here's the thing. I would never have made this dish without joy. Me, who grew up eating fried eggs and toast, wouldn't have thought about combining scrambled eggs, chilies, and crumbled corn tortilla chips. That's not part of my food way. But here we go. I've got these ingredients. I've got this recipe. Why not give it a shot? And it doesn't matter that the dish is simple. It was delicious. It was nourishing, and it made sensible use of the ingredients I had on hand. Actually, not only that, it saved a cup's worth of an edible food from going into the trash because I couldn't think of any other use for it. 
And at that moment, Joy and I were allies. Now, Irma Rombauer probably didn't have Amiga's recipe in her original 1931 edition, but I think that she would have appreciated that her book now had a recipe that not only benefited a tired, overwhelmed cook, but that it created a feeling of appreciation and excitement for trying a new recipe, especially one with things that they had on hand. At any rate, it was delicious, very savory, definitely met with approval from my not-so-fond-of-breakfast spouse. Usually when I offer to make breakfast, he's like, meh, could take it or leave it. In this case, he was sniffing around trying to figure out what I was cooking. (laughs) I would absolutely make this dish again. And now that I feel kind of grounded in it, you know, I've done it now. I have the experience of having made it. I'm eager to kind of try out some variations and maybe push some boundaries with blue corn tortilla chips, fire roasted corn, Mm. of course, adding a little bit of chorizo, Mm -hmm. all leftovers, of course. You know, <laughs> yes, I'm trying to, trying to trying to stay true to the fact that this dish is meant to bring disparate ingredients together into one whole. Actually, I'm attempting another recipe today, making pimento cheese bread for a Thanksgiving oh, potluck. Yum. And that's another dish I never would have thought to try. The directions for the bread are pretty clear, although I did have to kind of back up and go to the reference section of bread baking in the book to kind of pick up some really helpful tips about baking my round loaf in a Dutch oven, Mm. making sure I preheat my Dutch oven. Suggestion to preheat actually inverted so that you're not trying to put wet dough into the the bottom part of a hot cast iron. It's full of all kinds of really useful tips, things that I really wouldn't have known about. I could have bumbled through the recipe without those tips, but that's what Joy is kind of known for too, is that having this really great reference tool. Anyway, the directions are pretty clear. I'm giving it a go. So check the show notes for a photo of the final result. I also did take photos of my Mingus. I We had a little photo session, Mingus and me. So <laughs> check out our show notes if you want to see what the final product looked like. But trust me, it was delicious. I figured out that this is how Joy and I are going to work together. Though there'll be those moments where I need to find some inspiration and to have that lift, that rediscovery and the joy of cooking good food for myself and for others. This book definitely has a spot in my collection now and not just as a doorstop. I, I do see the value in this as a reference tool, as inspiration, as originally intended, inspiring others to, to find the joy in cooking. Well, what are your favorite recipes from The Joy of Cooking Live? What did, what did I miss? What should I go back and make? Well, there's one. There's a couple, actually, that I do want to suggest that you make. But before you do that, I just, I love this because this morning I had leftover and I actually keep all of the leftover tortilla chips and the broken taco shells specifically mm-hmm. to make my version of chilaquiles, which is oh, yeah. very similar to the migas. And I just love that. That's the recipe that you chose and that the day that we're recording this, we both have this story about (laughs) eggs and tortilla chips. I also had a little photo session with my not-so-traditional chilaquiles, so I'll put that alongside the uh, migas. Wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that was fun. Um, My favorite recipes, actually my all-time favorite recipe from Joy is called Angel Slices. Now, I am not entirely sure when this recipe was added. I know that it wasn't in the original. It's also known as Pecan Slices. Pecan, not pecan, because that's a different thing. We talked about that. We We talked talked about about this. this. Now, the head note in my 1964 version reads... 
Many a copy of The Joy has been sold on the strength of this recipe. Hmm. One fan says her family is sure these are the cakes St. Peter gives little children at the gates of heaven to get them over the first pangs of homesickness. Her family has dubbed them angel cookies. Aww. I love, I just just love that. Now, as for the strength of the recipe selling Joy, according to Joy Legend, a former editor's wife baked batch after batch after batch of these bars and sent them to booksellers, who then promptly ordered copies of Joy for their stores. Now, whether this is true or not, no one can testify to the truthfulness of this claim. But I can tell you that if she did indeed send them to the booksellers, it would have been a great introduction to the cookbook. Mm. They are That's so a- tasty. Okay. I'm inspired to give it a shot with pecan slices, angel slices. Pecan. 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 Pe- pe- pecan. Not pecan. Not pecan. Oh, pecan. Long, long A. Pecan. pecan. <laughs> I think that was our second pie episode. You're right. Wasn't it was. It? Yeah. I think. It yeah. was. Yep. Yeah. I know. I, rem- I remember. <laughs> I remember because we were ha- we had a good laugh over pecan versus pecan. Pecan. And yes, so take a listen to that second pie episode. The second recipe yeah. that you have to try, and this is so appropriate for the Pacific Northwest, they're called Nanaimo bars. And I'm going to say that these probably were added by Megan and Scott because it is, it's named after a town, a little town up in Canada, just past the border called Nanaimo. And these bars are (laughs) amazing. So those are my two recommendations. Both of them, obviously, sweets. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) you know, sweets make the world go around. They all love them. We all love them. I did ask a couple of my other friends, like, you know, you know me, I love to go out on my social media and say, yes. So tell me about (laughs) And I was thrilled to hear some of that, the suggestions that came up. One was for the crepes recipe. So I definitely mm-hmm. want to kind of go back and give that a shot. I've made crepes in a regular frying pan before and it can be done. It's just they're not the best. So I'm thinking this might be a good excuse to get a crepe pan that I will use probably once and then forget about. Because <laughs> I haven't needed one before. Why would I need one now? Right. Um, But I kind of want to try making crepes a real, you know, kind of a real way. I I actually should see what Joyce has to say about the proper surface to to create crepes on. Because maybe my technique, my frying pan technique is just wrong. I'm sure it can be enhanced. And then one of my best friends said that the pancake recipe has been the go-to family house favorite forever. And I actually have buttermilk in the house right now. So I'm thinking... I got to get me some buttermilk pancakes. I just think now I need to take time off work just to enjoy cooking. Exactly. Forget you work. Joy's at home with the joy of cooking. (laughs) Now, in our introduction to the joy of cooking in the last episode, Leigh, you mentioned that there was some drama surrounding the published revisions in the 1997 edition. And you know, I cannot resist (laughs) a rabbit hole. We were not going to let that one just lie there. Okay. No. So quick refresher for everybody. Joy is a cookbook came into being in 1931 as a means for Irma Rombauer to improve her family's financial situation after both the economic depression of the 1920s and her husband's subsequent suicide. Yeah. It was about more than that for the Rombauer family. It was a means for Irma herself to express her philosophy about homemaking with notes about 
practicality, efficiency, and the techniques of good cooking as much as it was her belief in finding joy and pleasure in bringing well-being to her family in the form of satisfying and nourishing meals. Just listen to this excerpt from her preface to the original 1931 edition. Quote, this book, Joy of Cooking, is a compilation of reliable recipes that will save hours of work. It is an effort to simplify what often appears to be a complicated process, the preparation of food. It tells of the most essential things to learn about the ways and means of cooking, the processes that are involved, and that do most to create what is palatable and nourishing in food. It shows how to measure, mix, and shape, how to prepare and cook the materials, and even how to arrange them. It helps one to understand what one is doing and why. It tells the purpose of each ingredient used in a dish. It gives one an understanding of all the simpler and plainer dishes and enables one to prepare them in an enjoyable and satisfying manner, end quote. Irma, I could not agree with you more. Mm. Now, Joy has seen many revisions, seven to date, done by her own family members, also by her publishers. I actually wasn't aware that she kind of accidentally signed off the copyright mm-hmm. to The Joy of Cooking, yeah. or like within five years of its original publication. Yeah, early, early on. Early, early on. And so there's been some kind of hanky editions published since then without her revisions, without care from the Rombauer and the Rombauer-Becker family. I kind of had missed that nuance. So a lot of the copyright has come back to the family, but it's been decades of effort to do so. Mm-hmm. So not all those revisions were actually done by her own family members. And I think this is actually true of the 1997 edition that garnered so much criticism because reportedly Simon and Schuster editor Maria Guarnaschelli, I may be mispronouncing that last name, went to great lengths to trim and modernize the content of the book according to the prevailing culinary trends by altering recipes to use less fat, cholesterol, and sugar and shifted the book's overall tone to appeal to more health-conscious readers. Back in 97, she was quoted in the Los Angeles Times as saying, quote, I think joy had become quaint, and I think a lot of people who cherish it sentimentalize it, which is a sure sign of its demise. The idea of this new revision is to update the reference material that was always there, and to give recipes within the chapters that are brand new and will make people want to cook from this book as much as they want to refer to it, end quote. But gone was the charming family voice found in the headnotes and the voluminous reference sections. Much of Irma's warm and conversational tone, added to by her daughter Marion over the years, was pared down to make the book more concise and clinical, at the expense of what made it so endearing and relatable. The New York Times referenced the revision specifically as, quote, the new Coke of cookbooks, <laughs> and posed the question of, which edition really deserves space on our shelves and in our kitchen? Now, I know that the 1997 edition really is widely regarded as having gone too far. But even though I'm a Kimmy-come-lately to this particular book party, I did think it posed some questions for discussion. In terms of recipe modernization, I struggled with recipes from my facsimile copies of the Women's Suffrage Cookbook and the Settlement Cookbook from earlier this season. Recipes as written for contemporary cooks of that time felt foreign and old-fashioned to my modern sensibilities, to the point that I actually felt that the bulk of these books was unapproachable, particularly within the Women's Suffrage Cookbook. I, I don't know if you remember then, I went to eggs because I thought that it would be <laughs> fairly easy. You kind of know when an egg is cooked and when it isn't. 
because I was having such a hard time deciphering nuances like what was a quick oven or a fast oven. Measurements were vague. Even just ingredients felt different from what I would be able to find. Sure, these books have an enduring value as a historical object and certainly as a cultural artifact, which is especially what Women's Suffrage Cookbook is. But it does kind of diminish its value as a useful kitchen tool that would help me prepare food to feed my family. And that begs my question, is a cookbook, especially one like Joy, meant to be an artifact of the context in which it was conceived by a particular author living in a particular place at a particular time? Or is it an enduring, useful kitchen tool addressing not only the question of how to cook, but also what to cook and how to serve it? At what point does editing and revision take on too much of a dimension? And must it be one or the other? Can it be both? Even if some of the recipes no longer appeal to our culinary tastes, do we still include them as a matter of accuracy and helping to build the sense of tradition and context? Leigh, what are your thoughts here? This is such a good question. As you know, my, my library is filled with vintage cookbooks. And I think for me, most of that, I, and I don't cook from them, but I reference them. I refer to them. Mm. So for me, it's a way to to kind of travel back and, and see what was happening, what was important at that point in time to those people. So that's why I love my vintage cookbooks. Now for Joy, I think that because this book has literally moved across time, and I think that for the most part, the editors were really cognizant of what Irma's philosophy and goal and purpose was for this cookbook. And, you know, again, going back to the 1997, which was so criticized, on one hand, we don't want to give up those traditions. We don't want to whitewash those traditions. And I think maybe that was the point that was being made is that mm -hmm. you have, you've gone too far. There's mm -hmm. a line that you crossed. Yes, we do want more contemporary, but we also want to have that nostalgia of what the joy of cooking was about. Like I noted about what Megan mentioned about the book specifically, if you don't update it, it becomes a museum piece. It becomes mm -hmm. an artifact. And I think for me, a lot of my cookbooks are literally artifacts. And I love that. I love that about them. But that's what I know they are to me. They're an artifact. I'm not necessarily going to cook from them. But the other part of it is you have to understand where your food has come from and where yeah. it's moving towards. You may be iterating on something and making it more accessible to the ingredients and the trends of today, but you're really not inventing much that's new unless, you know, you're doing the, the molecular gastronomy. Yeah. You've triggered an interesting thought here. So one of the things about Joy, because I'm thinking of another American icon, Betty Crocker who is not a real mm. person. I know I've burst somebody's sorry. bubble yeah, right sorry. now because a lot of younger generations don't understand that there was never a literal human being named Betty Crocker no. in this context. She's a fictional character, a fictional creation by General Mills, but she became a, a kitchen confidant. Her brand, Betty, is the number one best-selling cookbook of all time. Betty Crocker's mm. cookbook still maintains certainly top three. I think Joy of Cooking is top three of all time. Joy might have risen in the ranks, but she's always neck to neck with Betty Crocker. But the Betty Crocker cookbook has had 85 plus revisions. And I don't have an answer. It's just sort of a curiosity that I have in my head. 
why are we so offended by this joy revision when we tolerate something else that actually goes through revision at five times that rate? And I think it has to do with the personality because joy is from a real human being with, with a clear voice, with a clear purpose. Her writing is lovely. She's very much like Edna Lewis. You have a real sense of a person who is enjoying what they're doing, who wants you to enjoy what you're doing as well. And some of that tone and that warmth is very infectious. So I can see why folks very familiar with her work would have been offended by the removal of that tone and, and ultimately the character by changing up the recipes and the sections as much as they did. I just think it's funny that we're so okay with a constant revision in a reference sense in some material, but not in others. Right, right. I think for me, and this may be true of other people, but I think that because it's a brand, we know that General Mills is a brand. We may have thought that Betty was a real person. Sorry, guys. But we also know that she's related to a brand. So we have that commercialization around the Betty Crocker persona and those cookbooks, where, as you said, Joy is more about a real human being. She has a story. There was a purpose to this book, not only to help financially support her and her family after a tragedy, but Mm -hmm. to bring joy to people in the kitchen. Yeah. And it's funny, too, how books like these feel like a conversation. And I know Mm. I mentioned this when we talked about Anna Lewis's Taste of Country Cooking. Cookbooks flow in one way. I mean, revisions aside, they flow in one way. They are conceived, they are written, they are produced from a person or a group of people outward into history. You launch your cookbook and you hope that it helps somebody and that maybe it endures for a certain amount of time. There are plenty of cookbooks that we don't even know about that somebody wrote and it fell away, right? It just fell off of our radar. Not everything endures, but these ones have. And hopefully at some point in your life, you get feedback from people who have cooked and engaged with your book. At some point, the conversation may literally end, but figuratively it goes on. I can imagine Irma Rombauer. I can imagine Marion Rombauer-Becker. Both ladies have passed on. So even though they're no longer present, there's still a little bit of a conversation happening. One of our theses about doing cookbooks was that sense that cookbooks are more than just books of instruction. Right. That there are a lot of things. We talked about books helping to define a community and a culture. We had a great time talking about three or four cookbooks that do that. We talked about helping a cause or really defining a a particular time and place. We had great cookbooks that did that too. We also talked about the literary value of cookbooks, Mm. and this Mm -hmm. is one of them. This is one where you want, even though 6,000 recipes is a lot of recipes to look at, that's a lot of head notes. There's a lot of reference in this. Mm. It would be hard to sit and read this one cover to cover, but (laughs) you find a lot of charming notes along the way. And yeah. That makes it feel like you're still having that conversation with Irma Rombauer. She's sitting there with a martini. I imagine her with a martini more than a cup of coffee with her martini and cute little cocktail olive in it. And you're talking about what you're going to make for dinner. That's the sense I think I understand from Joy. Yeah. This is a good one. I appreciate this recommendation. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. So I have a couple of episodes to recommend to our listeners. Way back in episode 35, What's in Your Pantry, we talked about the impact of food waste Mm. and how to decipher the sell-by, best-by food expiration labels. I thought it might be a good refresher for us, particularly as we are going to be probably likely stockpiling boxes, bottles, and cans of food 
in order to accomplish our holiday cooking. And if anyone else is like me, you might buy two of something because one might not be enough, but then you might not use the, I mean, heck, look at my can of green chilies. Right. You know, so. I love, absolutely love this episode. And every time somebody says to me, oh my God, this expired last month. I'm like, (laughs) right. Deep breath. Please go listen to episode 35 before you throw that away. Yes, (laughs) exactly. I also found myself thinking a great deal about Bu Wei Ying Chao and our exploration of how to cook and eat in Chinese, because I found so many similarities between Irma and Bu Wei and their families and how they wrote these books that transcend not just recipes, but they also offer really valuable tips and insights into menu planning and how to serve and eat foods. You can find out more about that amazing book and author in episodes 61 and 62. And of course, for more stories about culinary icons, we recommend episodes 59 and 60 about Julia Child, episodes 55 and 56 about Chef Edna Lewis, and episode 20 for one of our favorite fictional cooks, (laughs) Ms. Betty Crocker. I super recommend episodes 61 and 62 because I know that a lot of people have not heard about Bu Wei Yang Chow. And I wish that somebody would make a movie about her and her doing this cookbook and the family dynamic. Oh, yeah. It would be an amazing movie. Absolutely amazing. And her story is really interesting. Interesting human being, an amazing accomplishment with this cookbook which is just one of her life accomplishments. Yeah, I really enjoyed getting to know her as well through her cookbook. Yeah. That was another great recommendation. We have one more cookbook to explore in this 2023 season of As We Eat, and it's one that is just in time for the holidays. Please join us for a special episode featuring our friend Kate McDermott, author of Art of the Pie. We'll not only talk about her best tips and techniques for delivering the perfect pie, but we'll also gain some insight into the process of writing, testing, and publishing a cookbook. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com, follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and join our table talks about food and recipes community on Facebook. I want to hear about your favorite holiday pie. Yes. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And after you take that last bite of breakfast, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcast or Podchaser or Spotify. We would be ever so appreciative. We love growing our community with like-minded food enthusiasts like you. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. This is a monthly collection of stories and favorite features and recipes touching on a theme. This month, we have focused on the foods and techniques that bring us closer to comfort. And we will have a new edition just in time for the holidays in early December. Subscribe now and give a gift subscription so you won't miss a single tasty bite at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending in a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole heaping lot of passion